Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors on staff along with Brian Douglas. I'm very grateful to have been pastoring All Saints for 16 years now. Hard to believe that it's been 16 years. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, went to seminary in Mississippi, and then came to All Saints straight out of seminary in 2002 at the ripe seasoned age of 26. Uh, And the reason I mention this is at, at the point of Paul's writing the book of Colossians, we believe that he had been ministering Uh, at at this stage of his ministerial career for 16 years. Uh, Where were you in your vocation 16 years in? I suspect not nearly as far or not nearly as accomplished than the Apostle Paul. Certainly that's true of this pastor. Uh, But Paul was converted, we think, in AD 36-ish. He began his ministry in AD 39, and then he was in prison in Ephesus in AD 55 or 56. According to the apocryphal Acts of St. Paul, so this is not scripture, but a, a, an account, a, a traditional account, quote, the furious people of Ephesus put St. Paul's feet into irons and shut him into the prison till he should be exposed as prey to the lions. But Eubola and Artemilla, wives of eminent men among the Ephesians, being his attached disciples and visiting him by night, desired the grace of divine baptism and by God's power with angels to escort them and enlighten the gloom of the night with the excess of the brightness that was in them. St. Paul, loosed from his iron fetters, went to the seashore and initiated them into holy baptism and returning to his bonds without any of those in the care of the prison, perceiving that they had left it or so maintains the uh, apocryphal account of the Acts of St. Paul. I seriously doubt Paul performed baptisms on the seashore while he was imprisoned. Uh, I suppose that is possible, but highly unlikely. What is certain, though, is that from that cold, dark, lonely jail cell, God used him to write inspired scripture. or this, This epistle, as it is called, this letter, Uh, And if you weren't here last week, we have started a new sermon series in the book of Colossians. It is a letter that he has written. Curiously, some people actually call Colossians the least significant of all Paul's letters, simply because it's written to most likely the smallest church in the smallest city to a group of Christians whom I said last week he had never met before. Um, This was not a big cosmopolitan, we're down in Manhattan planting Redeemer Presbyterian Church. This was the backwaters and bywaters of what would have been West Central Turkey at the time. So small church, small city, young Christians, baby Christians, who were full of energy and enthusiasm, but hardly yet aware of the great dangers and problems that they would be faced with. Um, I think it's a fantastic letter, and I love the passage that I get to preach on today um, because it touches on an issue that is just extremely applicable to all of us. Let me ask you this question to start off. And I already know the answer to it, so it's kind of rhetorical. When you pray for yourself or for other people, do you struggle to know what what to ask for God in prayer? Do you struggle to know what specific things, like the right things that you ought to be asking for him? Of course you do. Um, That's a real struggle for me. Uh, It's a real struggle for all of us. 
Because there's so many needs for us and for the people around us. You know, God, what is the best thing that I can pray in this or that circumstance? And I find that I sometimes probably get too caught up in uh, trying to find the right thing to say and not wanting to say the, ask for the wrong things. But what's the best things? What's the big ask that we can place before God? Well, this passage kind of tells us. He is informing this church, this local church, that when I pray for you from the bottom of my heart, this is what I ask God for. And this prayer is something you can always pray for yourself. You can always pray for your friends. You can always pray uh, for, for that guy who was just laid off from work or that kid who just went off to college or for my spouse and my marriage. It's applicable for every single situation and circumstance. Um, it's a fantastic prayer. So let's read it. Actually, before we read it, let's pray. (laughs) Our Father in heaven, we bless you, Lord, for we've already enjoyed your presence and worship. And now now as we come to your word, we say these, we make this request. Speak, Lord, speak, for we, your servants, we are listening. Open our ears to hear wonderful things that are spoken in your word. And teach us to pray like the Apostle Paul and like the Lord Jesus. To pray big asks by faith and never lose heart in doing so. To the glory of your holy name. And God's people said, Amen. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. He just said that uh, Epaphras has told me of your love in the Spirit. And for this reason, verse 9... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit provides. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Americans approach spirituality much like the Colossians were tempted to do so. We approach spirituality kind of like a salad bar. You get your plate, you get your tongs, you go down the line and you say, I like this, I don't like that. I'll take a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that philosophy, a little bit of this psychology. Uh, It's... It's what we call syncretism, where you you take from different religions and philosophies and you create your own designer spirituality. That is kind of American religion today. It's extremely syncretistic. Well, Paul was worried that they would be deceived in that way by a, a counterfeit spirituality. As we go on through the book, we'll talk a little bit more about the false teaching that was infecting the church in Colossae. But what we can tell... Maybe the big picture of it is 
it was, it was, um, it involved angels. It involved like this high view of angels and, and kind of coming up with the names of angels in order to use that as like spiritual power in your life. Um, and then it was also this weird Jewish mysticism that combined Jewish practices with aesthetic practices of harsh treatment of the body. You, know, you beat your body down in order to release your spirit. And Paul's concerned that they're going to take all of that and mix a little Jesus into the, the cake batter, and there you have a, a new spirituality. So then it's not surprising he prays for them in this way in verse 9. Let's look at it. We're just going to work our way through this prayer step by step. He begins in verse 9 by praying, first off, that you saints would be filled with the knowledge of God's will through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, provides. The most common spiritual question people ask today is, what is God's will for my life? A lot of times we're talking about God's will in terms of, should I take this job? Should I enter into this relationship? Where should I live? It's, it's those kinds of things. If you're younger, if you're a young adult, you're probably asking a lot of those questions right now because all of your life is before you and you have all kinds of opportunities. Can I give you a little bit of advice? Well, God may have specific answers to those questions. Most likely, he's not going to tell you straight up because that's not how the Spirit works. The Spirit of God does not write uh, up in the clouds, major in chemistry. (laughs) And the Spirit of God does not kind of communicate through the tea leaves. Uh, The Spirit of God makes, the way he works is he makes you a person who is full of understanding and wisdom. He's not going to give you the answer straight up. He's going to turn you into a wise person who is able to answer Uh, those questions for themselves. What are some of the benefits of that? Well, number one, it's very freeing because it means you don't have to have the God told me so assurance of being 100% correct. You you hear how a lot of people use that language. God told me to be, to to major in chemistry. Well, did he really? Why can't you just simply say, you know, as I, as I considered my gifts and I considered opportunities, that just seemed to be a, a good thing that, he, that, that I thought he wanted me to potentially do. Um, but it frees you with, from having that kind of level of certitude and assurance. The other thing that it does is, um, you know, it, it, it keeps you from having to spiritualize every decision uh, along those lines. Um, yeah, God gives you wisdom rather than straight-up answers. When I was 22, I was thinking about going to seminary. I thought that God was leading me in that direction. I prayed a hundred times to know what seminary I should attend. Over and over again, Lord, where do you want me to go? And eventually I got to the point that I took two post-it notes. I wrote the name of one seminary on one and one seminary on the other, folded them, put them in a hat, and prayed, God, you know... (laughs) lead my hand. And then when I pulled the, the name out and it wasn't the name I wanted, I, I said, best two out of three. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was in a, at a time in my spirituality where I was really into like, God doing 
miraculous things like that. But I've come to see that's not how he wants to lead us. It's, he wants to fill you with wisdom and understanding that the Spirit provides. How does he do this? Well, number one, he does it through wise counsel of our friends. What you ought to do is find people who know what you don't, you don't know and who can do what you can't do, and you learn from them. Um, if they're good with money, you say, show me. If, if they know real estate, well, I'm trying to sell my house. Show me. Um, my wife's crying. Your wife's laughing. Help me. My kids are struggling. Your kids are not. Help me. You ask questions. You seek counsel of godly people, and they lead you in that way. The other thing you do is you do pray. You pray and you listen to God, and sometimes he, he does nudge your spirit in one direction or another. But the most important thing you do to know God's will, you have to know God's word. When Paul is talking about knowing God's will here, what he's really talking about is the theological big picture of the universe, the questions, the, the really important questions, which are not, should I be a biology major or a chemistry major? They are, who is Jesus? What is God doing in the world through Jesus? Where is history headed through Jesus? And who am I in Christ Jesus? You make all of your decisions based out of a deep sense of who you are in Christ. And, and that's what gives you the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit provides. Um, so you must be in the Bible then. To know the will of God, you must know the Word of God. So you read the Bible, you study the Bible, you meditate on the Bible, you memorize the Bible, because um, that's, that's His will for you. Moving on to verse 10. We pray that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in order that, verse 10, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. A life worthy of the Lord. Do you use that kind of language? Like talking about being worthy of the Lord? As I was thinking about it this week and thinking about my own theological jargon and vocabulary, I realized I don't talk that way very often. Um, we, we kind of, we, we don't, we, we'd say, I'm not worthy. <laughs> We're not worthy. But this is language the Apostle Paul very frequently uses. Can I give you some examples? Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God. And then finally, if you're writing these down, 2 Thessalonians 1.11, may God make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for, for good and every work of faith by his power. I think this is important for us to realize when Paul talks about being worthy of the Lord, he's not setting before us an impossible standard that we could never achieve. Um, he, we shouldn't shy away from this language because this is his normal language for Christianity. Your, your aspiration in life ought to be that it would be a life worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, worthy of God, and worthy of God's kingdom. Um, that's what, if you're going to come up with a slogan and put it up on the wall in your house, walk in a manner worthy of him. And you make that your, 
your dear and daily aspiration. Well, how do we do that? Maybe one of the keys for doing so is focusing on, in on that word worth. You cannot walk worthy of God if you do not feel the worth of God. You cannot walk worthily of his kingdom if you do not feel and know the worth of his kingdom. You cannot walk worthy of his calling you, unless you first feel the worth of his calling. We'll use this example. You know, I am Aaron Cheney's husband. I want to walk in a manner worthy of being her husband. And what does that mean? It means that I'm faithful to her. Uh, I must be kind and tender-hearted to her. I must do the dishes for her. <laughs> I must remember anniversaries. Uh, but I do all of those functions simply because she's of, of such worth to me. And so it is with God. Uh, to walk worthy of God, he must be your greatest treasure. And you must say, Lord, I want you above all else. So the purpose of your life as a Christian is to walk worthy of the Lord. And then Paul goes on, again, I want to focus on this language because it's such key language. He says, and to please God in every way. Make it your aspiration to please him in every way. Again, this is language we don't use very often. Do you talk about pleasing God on a daily basis? If anything, I talk about how I displease God. I always feel like I'm displeasing him, which is frankly part of my own spiritual cancer. Um, but God, maybe it's because we think too much about God as a judge and not, not enough about God as our father. I mean, don't your kids, if you're a parent, do, not, do your sons and daughters, do they please you and put a smile on your face? Of course they do. Um, Again, Paul's not laying out an impossible standard that we can't attain. He's saying that we can please our Father with our efforts because we are his sons and daughters. You say, well, how can we do that if everything that, that all of our actions are tainted by sin and imperfection? To which I reply, well, aren't all of our efforts colored by the blood of Jesus' cross? Because of the finished work of Christ, even though our actions are imperfect and riddled with sin— God can still find them pleasing and delightful in his eyes. That's what actually our Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. It says, quote, Although they are, our works are accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Here's the key language. God looks upon them in his son and is pleased to accept and reward that which is done in sincerity. What this means is that he is pleased by you, his sons and daughters, and that you shouldn't walk around with the spiritual cancer of always thinking that he's displeased because you are in Christ. And he accepts even your, your poor works done in sincerity um, as something that puts a smile on his face. All right, let's move on to the second half of verse 10, if you'll look there. Here Paul then goes on to flesh out four ways that we do things that are pleasing to God. If you look in verse 10, there's a colon. After the colon, we read these four things that are part of our pleasing actions to God. We um, bear fruit in every good work. We grow in the knowledge of God. We're strengthened for perseverance and endurance, and we give joyful thanks to the Father. I want to talk about each of these. Number one, 
we will bear fruit in every good work. You will and do bear good fruit. Uh, remember back to kindergarten and your, your very first science experiment. You got a styrofoam cup and you put dirt in it. And then you put a seed and then you covered the seed with some more dirt. You started watering it and then you put it in the windowsill waiting uh, for something to happen. Day after day you watered and day after day there was nothing. <laughs> You'd look, come in the next day for class, nothing. Come in for another day, nothing. Until finally there was something. There had to be a something, right? Because, because a seed has life inside of it. The seed takes root and it must bear fruit. If there is a seed there, there will be a something. And you were amazed as a kindergartner of how that something began to sprout up for the first time. I know that many of us are discouraged at where we are at in our Christian life right now, where we are at in our walk with God, because we look at maybe where we should be and we think, I have fallen so short of that. But what I would do is encourage you to look back for a moment on what has God already done in you? How have you already changed? Uh, who would you be today if it wasn't for Christ in your life? What kind of husband would you be today if Christ hadn't been there? What kind of wife, what kind of son or daughter would, would you be? Um, sure, there is a lot of work that remains to be done in your growth, but, but God has already done great things within you, and he is in the process of growing new fruit through you. The only reason a person wouldn't bear fruit is if they have no spiritual life, no spiritual seed to begin with. And that is just not the case with the vast majority of you. I see it. I see the fruit in you. And so be encouraged and know that God wants to make you more fruitful. Um, but one of the things that I was, I'm so encouraged by this prayer is, you know, God writes prayers in the Bible to tell us what we should ask for because he wants to give us everything that he tells us to ask for, right? He wants to give us all of this. Being filled with the knowledge of his will, he wants to give that to you. Being fruitful in every good work, he wants to give you, et cetera, et cetera. He wants this for you and he will provide this for you. Secondly, here it is, he prays in, at the end of verse 10, secondly, that you would grow in the knowledge of God. But I thought he just prayed that we would grow in God's knowledge. He did, right? He said we would grow in the knowledge of God's will, which would lead to us bearing more spiritual fruit, in order that we might increase in the knowledge of God. So what Paul has done is it's not a circular argument. It's actually a spiral argument where understanding leads to holiness and holiness then spirals back up into deeper understanding. So that's what he's, he's saying. Um, you, you, you know more about his will. You become more holy. The result is you become somebody who knows God better. Um, let's say that you have, you're, you have an addiction and you decided that you want to try and, and deal with that. And so you go across the street to Valley Life to their Celebrate Recovery program, which is 
fantastic program. And, it, and if, you, if you do have an addiction of some sort, you should not be ashamed in the least to, to seek help like that. Um, but this could be applicable if you have marital problems and you go into marriage counseling. Whatever the problem is, my experience is that it, it rarely works if you go in with the mindset, fix this problem. Whatever that problem is, you don't go in saying, fix this problem. What you do is you go on saying, God, fix my deficiencies in my knowledge of you. Like, I want to know who you are. I want to address my deficiencies in the knowledge of you and how I'm relating to you. I want to really know what you are like. And if you go in with that instead of fix my problems, you're much more likely to end up actually having your problems fixed. You have much more of a tendency to, to push through it. Because what's happening, you're getting yourself under the waterfall of who God is, and you're getting swept up and cleansed by the God who is, instead of trying to manage your behavior and your circumstances. So I would challenge you to make your greatest desire, your deepest desire to be a person who says, I want to know you. I want to know you. That's one of the most fantastic things we can pray for one another, is I, I pray that uh, that Don and that Bill and that Kathy, and I just prayed that they would know you better in, in, in this. Um, and maybe that desire for you, the desire to know God, has been pushed to the side and replaced by more worldly things. But I would, but make it your desire to know Him and keep pursuing Him. Um, pursue him in his word. Don't go back and merely read your favorite books of the Bible. Study new ones. Don't rely on verses you memorized 10 and 15 years ago. Learn new ones. Pursue God in his word. And then in verse 11, he prays that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you would have great endurance and patience. What does this mean? There are two things that become tempting the further and further we go in the Christian life. What are they? Number one is just to give up. And number two is to be joyless. Either in the difficulties of your life, you will quit on Christ and on faith. Or you will say, I'll continue. I'll still continue to do Christian stuff. I'll show up on Sunday mornings. But it's just kind of a dutiful grind. You're just dutifully grinding it out, and you've lost all joy. Um, how many of you have looked at your life, and you have thought, uh, I can't do this anymore. I just can't endure, endure any, any more of this pain. Uh, when I hear people say that, you know, I don't say it exactly this way, but I want to say, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You can't do it anymore. You don't have that in and of yourself. You don't have that power. What you need is a divine, supernatural source of power to continue. You need power, glorious might kind of power to continue to love that person, to continue to forgive that person, to continue to persevere and, and to endure. You need God's power. And what is he saying in verse 11? He will give it to you. He will give it to you so that you can march forward through another day with patience, and not only with patience that's just grinding it out, but also with joy and with thankfulness, as he speaks about in the next verse, verse 11. Um, and you, be, you, with God's power, 
are able then to say, Lord, I can continue in this as long as you want me to go. I can continue because it's not my power, it's your power. Um, You've got to hear me say this, church, and I don't mean this just as a rhetorical flourish. God loves to give his power to struggling Christians to lead them through their circumstances, and he wants to give that to you. And don't give up believing that he wants to give that to you, okay? The fourth part, then, is in verse 12, as I just said. How else are we to please God? It is by giving joyful thanks to the Father. And let me just continue through the rest of the passage. Giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to conclude by talking about what those two final sentences mean. And then uh, I've got a story to, to finish it off with. He says that there's an inheritance that awaits the saints. He says that this inheritance is something that you are already pre-qualified for. <laughs> you have, you're qualified for this inheritance. Inheritance, if you're knowledgeable of the Bible, that's promised land language. Uh, that God will take you out of a land of bondage, out of Pharaoh's land, into a land of inheritance. But here, the emphasis is not on geography, you notice. It says your inheritance is a kingdom of light. Here, the emphasis is not on geography, but brilliance. And so here's what I think it means. On that day, when you receive your inheritance, you will discover that none of your life was in vain. All of it, all of it, all of it will get rewarded. Because God is keeping account, an account of it all. And it all gets rewarded. He says, I have an inheritance for you. The only way, it's so good, the only way I can describe it is to say it is a, a kingdom of light. It is an eternal provision of spiritual, physical, and emotional, uh, God-given blessing. A, a great provision of God's grace and blessing that will be a reward for all of your life. And then he says, look how he describes your present spiritual reality. You've been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the son he he loves. This is your reality. As one um, pastor put it, he says, I don't know why this isn't on the news every night. Because this is the best news. This should be the lead story every evening on the ABC and NBC and CBS News. That you have gone... Your reality is you have gone from darkness into light, from death into life, from condemnation into salvation, from enemy into family. You have been released from a cruel master called Pharaoh and sin, and you have been redeemed by what? By the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. You are delivered, redeemed, transferred, and eternally provisioned in Christ. Amen? And you are already qualified for this. You don't earn this. This is yours. You have this. And this makes you a man or woman who joyfully gives thanks to God and in any, any and every circumstance. Let me conclude with the story that I, I just mentioned. Teachers, I think, will really relate to this story 
Uh, it, it, there's a pastor, and I've forgotten his name, but he pastors a Baptist church in South Africa, in Durban. And he, before he became a pastor, he uh, was an English teacher. And uh, here's, in his own words, he says, uh, As a first-year high school English teacher, I strove zealously to inspire my grade 10 and 11 classes to love poetry, enjoy literature, and appreciate mankind's rich literary history. I modeled my teaching style on Robin Williams' character in Dead Poets Society. As I taught, I would strut along their desks. I often whisked the class outdoors for a change of scenery. I'd compose funny limericks and even rap songs. And I often became dramatic and flamboyant, shouting and gesticulating and putting on various accents. But no matter what I did or how passionately I communicated, in every class, some bored, slouching student would, ev- would inevitably raise a hand and ask the deflating question, is any of this going to be on the test? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hated that question. Who cares about the test? I'd respond by waxing eloquent with an impassioned rendition of Mr. Keating's diatribe in, to his learners, how we don't read poetry and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love. Can you remember this moment in Dead Poets Society where he's saying, all of these are what we stay alive for. And my students would smile and nod their heads up and down in affirmation. And then, so it's not going to be on the test? (laughs) (laughs) We don't actually, we don't actually grow out of that. We, We really do live life based upon just the test, the kid test. Uh, Did I get my kid into Yale in the seventh grade? (laughs) You know, the the sports test. You know, did did my kid make the team and win the championship? The job test. Did I achieve the, the level of personal success, professional success, that I, I was meant for. Well, we changed the test, but it's, we're still playing f- for the test. Friends, what do we stay alive for? What does it mean to live? You have just heard it in this passage. It means to grow in the knowledge of God's will and to grow in the knowledge of God himself and to give joyful thanks to God in all circumstances. You do this, which then culminates in receiving an eternal reward. That's what we live for. As I said at the beginning of my sermon, it's been 16 years, and I am so honored to have been your pastor for 16 years, and I'm so thankful for our our church. Um, I'm so sorry for my melancholy temperament that oftentimes looks at problems more than it does eternal and glorious joys. Um, I focus too much on the bad, and and I fail to see the glory of Christ that is here. Um, And so I make a commitment to you with the hope that you will make this mutual promise back to me. I will pray this passage for you and for our church. And you pray this passage for me. And we will pray this thing for us together. When you are wondering what to say to God in prayer, um, when you are wondering 
say this, say this big ask, say this by faith and, and promise that we will not cease asking these magnificent things from God. As I said earlier, he wrote it down and told us to pray for it because he wants to give it all to us. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God.